Hi everyone, today is October 9th, 2014. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Seema Agarwala. Hi, Seema. Hi. She's an associate professor of molecular bioscience at UT Austin. Her lab looks at the complex molecular biomechanics that determine the 3D structure of the CNS during embryogenesis, early embryogenesis. Her recent work focuses on the molecular dynamics that determine neural tube closure. Is that about right? That's right. <laughs> okay. That's right. And around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. Hello. And we've got Gary Galfo. Hello. And I'm your host, Selma Karashi. Early embryonic development seems like such uh, a complex engineering problem. There's so many um, genetic factors at play, physical forces, scalar gradients uh, in multiple dimensions, including time, I guess, which is very important, and a thousand, no less than a thousand genes regulating all that. Um, so can you say something about how much of the overall process is based on global versus local interactions? Like, can we think of it of the of sort of the can we think of it as a self-organizing system, meaning that like global order or coordination arises out of like little local interactions between things, or is there some sort of master orchestrator that um, keeps various elements in check as a system comes together? Is it, I mean, is it even useful to think of it in those terms? Well, you know, uh, so, so I think it there is definitely there are definitely genes that regulate uh, three dimensional tissue shape changes globally. There have to be because some of these changes occur, for example, in an entire body axis, right? So there is a pathway, for example, called the plantar cell polarity pathway that organizes. Um, that uh, orients cells or you know cellular elements in the plane of an organ. So those are global cues, right? And in fact, if you have plantar cell polarity defects, um, you do have the most severe class of neural tube closure defects called craniorachiasis. These defects leave in the spinal cord as well as the brain open, right? So that would be a global cue, right? Um, then there are local cues, and that is, uh, uh, for example, the the mesoderm that underlies the neural uh, plate, for example. The mesoderm, um, which is a germ layer, uh, it, it's at the, the mesoderm that's immediately at the ventral midline of the neural tube, the notochord. That actually... Uh, is a major component of um, neural tube closure because at some point it is yoked to the neural plate and the notochord actually descends downwards, right? So as the notochord descends, it yanks on the neural plate at the ventral midline. And in fact, it uh, apparently is a bigger contributor to shape changes than the intrinsic shape changes that I described in uh, in the so in the intrinsic shape changes, for example, um, narrowing the the apical surfaces of tissue or moving nuclei away during invagination. During invagination, the notochord actually produces the larger force uh, by yanking on the neural tube. So those are localized interactions between midline mesoderm 
and the neural tube. And then, um, so this is a little more controversial, but uh, surface ectoderm or future skin has much to do with uh, neural tube closure. So the idea is the surface ectoderm, or I'll, I'll call it future skin from this point, uh, it actually attaches to the dorsal half of the neural tube in a very dynamic way. So this kind of a uh, sliding mechanism. And this applies a propulsive push on the neural folds so that they become apposed. So that those are, again, local tissue interactions. And then um, the uh, uh, head mesenchyme, which is tissue uh, surrounding uh, a, a loose uh, cluster of tissue that surrounds the neural plate, head mesenchyme, uh, has a, uh, you know, a mechanical role in lifting up the folds. So yes, local interactions uh, and uh, tissue tissue interactions have everything to do with neural tube closure in addition to intrinsic mechanisms. So when you say tissue tissue interactions, um, do we know and and the the various tissue specific signals? Do we know? Are do do you as developmental neurobiologists look at how physical forces trigger signaling mechanisms. I mean, do we do we know a lot about that? Is that something that is sort of part so of So people want to think about it, but you know, this um, this would be a difficult problem to study because you have to get, you know, to study three-dimensional shapes accurately, you sort of have to stick with an in vivo system. Right? Because tissues don't fold. You know, when we take a neural plate and put it in a tissue culture dish, the folds just flop around and they don't do what they would do in vivo. So these measurements would have to be done in vivo. So this this makes it a harder problem. But you know, absolutely, people should be thinking about measuring these physical forces. You know, each of these cells at the stage. You know, so I I work in a bird, and uh, in the bird, the the cell diameters at this stage are about five microns across, right? So you have to think about these complex three-dimensional shape changes. These are pulled off by really small cells, each of which has to generate a set of forces. Um, and so, so you really, the, so we just described the extrinsic forces, the surrounding tissues, but the intrinsic forces also have to come into play to close the, the tube. And this, in, you know, this can come from cytoskeletal dynamics, changing, you know, we know something about changes in the actin cytoskeleton, and we're beginning to know a little bit about the role of microtubules in moving nuclei up and down the neural tube. Um, we know that um, making and breaking junctional complexes is a is a big part of this. So cell 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 adhesion has a role to play in all of these mechanisms. You know, and so so all of these generate forces or modulate forces, and these are really not well understood phenomena. So I have a question. You mentioned that uh, in, in the ventral midline line, you have the mesoderm-derived notochord um, physically pulling down the midline to cause that uh, mm-hmm. that hinge, but also notochord and um, the the overlying midline of the neural tube are major signaling centers. 
that are um, secreting growth factors that are involved in patterning and also proliferation. The uh, dorsolateral hinge point is much more prominent as you um, reach the hindbrain. Right? You have the, the expansion of the third ventricle, and it becomes even more prominent as you go into the cerebral cortex. Can, can you speculate on uh, what what uh, um, what makes those differences? Right. Also, so, kind of a- so uh, I think um, there are two things to it. Number one, the size of the tissue, the tissue that you need to fold, and number two, how big the ventricle is going to be. Right, and so uh, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the studies in the bird, where there's a you know, you know. So in in primary neurulation, which is the process where a plate falls into a tube, um, um, the ventricle forms the ventricle, which is the hollow cavity that uh, all neural tissue have, that form forms as a passive consequence of the plate folding up into a tube, right? But having said that, there is a brief occlusion between the midbrain and more anterior regions and the hindbrain and spinal cord. And this occlusion allows the the neural plate to exude more cerebrospinal fluid in the midbrain, so that poofs out the midbrain and forebrain and accounts in part for their you know, massively different and larger size. And a similar uh, active process of blowing a ventricle, uh, you know, increasing the ventricular size doesn't exist in more caudal regions of the neural plate. And the very caudal region of spinal cord actually doesn't form by folding a uh, plate into a tube. It forms uh, from a solid rod, which is cavitated. Right, so the long and short of this is that the hindbrain, caudal hindbrain, and spine, spinal cord have a very small ventricular space. As a result of which, when the invagination occurs and the neural folds are lifted, the folds are very closely apposed because the ventricular space intervening between the two folds is really non-existent. As you know, in the spinal cord. There's a very, very small ventricle, also true of caudal hindbrain. But as you go more anteriorly, the ventricular cavity and the brain size increases dramatically. So now the folding problem is really very different, right? Now you're folding a much floppier, bigger tissue that's going to uh, go around a bigger ventricle. And so that requires a second hinge point. That's that's my understanding. So the brain is uh, uh, initially a hydraulic event, which is more cerebrospinal fluid, and that what determines where the brain is going to be. The cerebrospinal flu- the amount of cerebrospinal fluid secreted determines the size ah. of the brain. Yeah. So in, in the larger parts of the brain, you need the second set of hinge points. That's my understanding. So, uh, once you have the larger ventricle, then this whole process, I mean, the process we haven't talked about, but which I know you study is this whole process of cell division and the proliferation of cells uh, in this, in the neural tube as it's growing and, and closing. And the, 
what determines the you know how much proliferation there is because the so the same you know so the entire body of uh, metazoan animals is patterned by the same eight or ten would you say, would you agree with that number eight or ten signaling cascades right so um, um, the same molecules that regulate patterning also regulate growth. So, uh, you know, here we should distinguish probably between two types of growth. So when we talk about growth and development, we're really talking about pattern-based growth, right? So as you form a pattern, you also grow the tissue in accordance with that master plan, right? So that is a different thing from nutrition-based growth, you know, which comes from insulin-dependent in you know, uh, insulin-like growth factors, etc., which you know have to do with growing an existing pattern, an existing body plan, right? So, but the initial uh, regulation of proliferation, cell death, size control, that actually so there's a whole body of beautiful literature that came out of the fly world and then slowly moved its way into the vertebrate that suggests that pattern is upstream of growth, right? So if you have a specific pattern, the growth will conform to that specific pattern, right? So for example, in the sonic hedgehog experiments that uh, both Gary and I have done, um, you know, when when I misexpress sonic hedgehog dorsally in the midbrain, dorsal midbrain is huge in the bird. Ventral midbrain is not. It's the opposite in the mammal, right? Because birds are visual and mammals are not. Um, and so when we misexpress sonic hedgehog, it can convert in, in the dorsal half of midbrain. It converts the dorsal midbrain into ventral midbrain, and the growth drops dramatically. Because you've induced ventral pattern, the growth patterns now conform to that ventral pattern. So there are really two different ways to control growth. And early in development, the same molecules that control pattern control growth in um, concordance. And that's dissociated later when... So it's a separate, separate thing, you know. Later on, you're growing an existing plant. You're not creating the plant, right? I mean, from when you're two to when you're... 22, you're growing an existing body plan. You're not changing it. Those are insulin-dependent. And I'm sure there are other pathways, but I'm broadly categorizing them as nutrition-based growth and insulin-like pathways. Now, pulling that idea back into uh, a neural tube closure and the hinge points, you mentioned there's a, uh, a clear difference in the, uh, the midbrain between uh, um, birds and, and mice, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, birds have a much more enlarged um, dorsal neural tube. Uh, do you find that that's correlated to where the hin- dorsal lateral hinge points would be based on that growth difference? Well, it's the, since the hinge point is not a static thing, that's a very difficult question to answer, right? And I'm not sure you brought up the sulcus limitans earlier. Um, so the sulcus limitans is this uh, tissue, po- uh, sorry, cell pore region between um, dorsal and ventral tissues all the way up to midbrain, midbrain to spinal cord. Um, 
And there is reasonable evidence that the sulcus limitans is close to, if not right at, the dorsoventral border boundary. But I'm not sure the dorsolateral hinge point it is in that Yeah, because it moves. You know, and at stage nine in the bird, the dorsolateral hinge point is almost near the point of fusion. So it's a, you know, very dynamic event that is at a different position. Different it would be interesting if you can uh, um, do a lineage analysis of this, the dynamic movements of the hinge point to see what type of cells arise from that area. And yeah. let's say if, if all sensory neurons arise from this um, moving target, it would um, kind of better define, you know, sensory dorsal versus motor. Uh, so it's so in the bird, because the bird doesn't have a, uh, you know, well, it kind of has a um, small amount of what we would call true cortex, whilst, um, you know, the superior, the superior colliculus called the tectum in the bird, which is a derivative of dorsal midbrain, is kind of like a cortex in the bird. So it has a sensory component. You know, its dorsal layers are sensory. But then it does a whole lot of other things that no other tissue does, right? So some of these functions are actually allocated to um, the cortex in mammals. So this idea of dorsal sensory and ventral, motor ventral, it doesn't quite work out in uh, anamnios and birds. It really does work out in the mammal. In the midbrain. So when we, I don't know how to ask this question. Uh, so so many elements are changing in tandem, and how do we determine which ones are deterministic? So you have, um, you know, you have the neural tube closing, you have convergent extension going on, and all these things are going to be determined by gradients of various different factors. And most of you study, is, this, is it true to say that most of you study sort of things in isolation? Well, you know, I'm, um, it's... That's probably not correct. Any, but, but what are your thoughts on how, I mean, it's a, the so dynamics you know, are so the, important. The plantar cell polarity mm-hmm. pathway, which is responsible for convergent extension, um, and the apico-basal polarity pathway, which seems to have much to do with closure along the apical basal axis, they coordinate, actually. And, and the way to think about that is to think about, um, you know, so the old idea of convergent extension where cells are crawling toward the midline and then extending. So they, they have a lateral to medial movement and then they extend along the AP axis. That idea of convergent extension is, you know, um, Derived from the mesoderm, which at you know at the t- at the time points we were talking about is still mesenchymal in organization. So these cells actually grow lamellopodia, and they crawl you know in a directional manner to narrow the body axis and elongate it. But when you come to the neural tube, you know neural tube also undergoes a similar narrowing and elongating. It has to because it has to keep up with the mesoderm and the endoderm. Um, but in the neural tube, this, you know, uh, convergent extension is occurring in the context, at least in amniotes, 
in an epithelialized tissue. Right, so these cells are tethered at the apical and basal ends. And so the question is, what is converging and what is extending, right? It isn't your lamellopodia-based crawling. That's not happening in the neural tube. So what plantar cell polarity does in the neural tube actually is junctional remodeling, right? So what you're doing is you have, the, you have this beautiful network of polygonal cells. So you, if you look down at the tissue from the apical surface, you'll see this, you know, outlines, you know, um, four, five, six, seven cornered cells. And they're all tethered to each other by junctional complexes. So how do you narrow and elongate such a tissue? You do that by exchanging neighbors. Right, and so you have these you have these cells, you know, and now this would be hard to demonstrate with my fingers, but if you have two cells that are opposed to each other, and they, let's say they share this kind of, you know, they occupy this area, but now simply by exchanging neighbors, they can, you know, change their configuration in such a way that the net effect of that is narrowing and elongating simply by exchanging neighbors. So um, now if you think about narrowing and elongating along the planar or the long axis of the body, it has consequences at the apical basal axis, right? Because narrowing in this axis, will, if you look at it in a cross-sectional view, will be apical constriction, right? Because if you're narrowing in the medial lateral axis, that will be apical constriction if you look in cross-section. So, so that's an example of how the, the events of the AP and the apical basal axis, anteroposterior and apical basal axis, are being coordinated. Right? Um, ask me your question again. It wasn't a very well-formed question. It's just, it was basically, I mean, you told me my premise was false, but <laughs> these are sort of things that are being looked at in tandem and coordinated. Right, so I, I remember what I was going to say. So the plantar cell polarity pathway, so there, there are genes. So, right, so the, my point here is the plantar cell polarity pathway is talking to junctional complexes, and the apical-basal polarity pathway is also talking to junctional complexes. So where they come together is injunctional remodeling. And if you remodel junctions, you know, it's not such a stretch to remodel the, the cortical actin because the cortical actin is associated with these junctional complexes. If you're going to trade junctional partners, you've got to actually break junctions and reform them. Mm -hmm. yeah. So is that related to the sort of cyclic making and breaking of the That's junctions right. that you use? Study. Yeah. So part of the cell cycle is this building and unbuilding of the tight junctions. Of That's tight right. Junctions. And, you know, the, the, what happens during mitosis is somehow key in all of this, and we understand the least about it, right? Because, you know, there are people who believe that a cell is not polarized during mitosis, right? But uh, that doesn't seem to be true of neural tissue. I mean, if we are looking for junctional markers, they co-localize with markers of mitosis. So neural tissue may do this uniquely, 
the jury is still out on this because we don't have enough data and nobody else seems to either but you know just anecdotally the junctions seem to be there right um, and so the so now you have not only our neighbors exchanging neighbors the mitotic cells they're popping in and out right because they are moving out of the plane of these junctional complexes and so it's unclear to me how this is uh, dealt with you know so when this cell pops out what happens to the junctional complexes and how do they you know fill that space um, I like to have a time-lapse movie of that um, there are time-lapse movies of this in the fly where you know in, in our case the curvature of the tissue is so deep that we can't really flatten and study the tissue just cracks so we, we haven't had success doing that but the fly wing is very easy to to look at and they have looked at it and there you know the idea is when cells come into mitosis they lose their polarity but this is clearly not the way the neural tissue does it so that the jury is still out on how this event is you know, talking to convergent extension mechanisms. But, but during mitosis, the junctional complexes are, that's their moment of, of dissolution, isn't that right? Or is it? That's what every other pseudostratified epithelium does. But there are these 1996 papers by a guy called Hutner, which suggests that. Um, um, Neural cells do not lose so their junctions. Right. right. So, um, but how they do it, I don't, you know, the, these 1996 studies didn't do it in time lapse. And, you know, it, it's, very, it's a difficult question to answer just because of the tissue curvature. So, your study of neural tube closure, this is kind of a, a related topic. Um, uh, and the BMP and SMAT signaling system. It seems that uh, in the neuroepithelium, uh, where the hinge points don't occur, uh, the effectors of BMP, the phosphorylated SMADs, are located more on the apical surface. Okay, um, as you know, during uh, um, um, cell division, uh, there's this interkinetic movement, this upward movement from the apical to the basal side. So it's, it seems that on when BMP signaling is upregulated on the apical side, it's very high, and that's where um, um, asymmetric cell division is occurring, right? And at these uh, at these uh, hinge points, it seems like it's no longer that apical region; it's more of the the basal region. Can you comment on how that changes the cell diversity within that region? Um, it would suggest that less asymmetric or symmetric division is occurring at these hinge points, and therefore there's less cellular diversity, whereas in other regions you have so, um, greater. There is less cellular diversity, that is true. But I'm not sure it's less diverse in terms of mitosis. So there's very little mitosis in the hinge point. So remember, this is going to become the floor plate literally two stages later, right? It's going to express sonic hedgehog and signaling centers like the floor plate, they typically don't have high rates of proliferation, right? In fact, that's a, a diagnostic criterion, one of the di diagnostic criteria for 
signaling centers, low cell division. Um, so uh, when we look at the hinge point, what we had hoped to find were uh, cell divisions that where the cleavage plane was perpendicular to the apical surface, because that would involve a smaller cell. I mean, smaller cell volume, I'm sorry. Because if the cell divides, so if, if this is the apical surface, and the cell divides like this, so here is one daughter cell, and here is another oh, so one. one above the other, so yeah. side to side. Right, so this would occupy less space when the cell is at its biggest. But if the cleavage plane is uh, perpendicular to the apical surface, this cell would occupy a huge space. So we expected to go in and find cells that would have cell divisions parallel to the apical surface. It turns out not to be the case. You know, these are random. And um, so, but what is true is that these cells somehow don't go all the way up to the apical surface. I think the apical the surface constricts terribly, and the nucleus can't squeeze into that apical space, and so cell division occurs, uh, you know, what we are calling subapically, for lack of a better uh, description. Um, and so, you know, everything that people who study epithelial organization you know, they would be horrified at this type of cell division because the idea is that this kind of cell division is going to trash the epithelium um, and the epithelium is you know, really not going to be organized and if it's not organized, it can't function correctly. But it clearly is organized. It clearly does up and close. So there are obviously some exceptions to this generic rule and we don't quite understand it. So I didn't, um, you know, we have some time-lapse data uh, with uh, BMP blockade, which shows that, um, you know, so the cells, so with BMP blockade, as uh, the cells get stuck away from the apical surface, right? Uh, and by elongating G1 and S phases, and then, although the average length of the G2 and M phases are really not different statistically, there are cells um, that jump out, uh, you know, off prematurely jump out of G2 into mitosis subapically. So, you know, the noggin misexpression in time lapse actually mimics what happens at the hinge point by encouraging. Uh, subapical mitosis. Uh, why this uh, doesn't disrupt tissue organization? Uh, I don't know. One thought is uh, there. There are you know at any given time point, one or two mitotic cells in every section, every fourteen micron section at the hinge point. So maybe by keeping the numbers of mitotic cells down, you keep the the disorganization down. But having said that, a single mitotic, you know, two mitotic cells can make up 30% of the volume of the hinge point. So it's not a trivial amount of uh, space that they occupy. Why does the epithelium have to be organized? Maybe that's a dumb question, but 
I mean, as long as the junctions are all good at the apical side and the junctions are all good at the basal side, why can't things... This sounds like me talking to my parents about my room, but the, <laughs> why can't things be all sort of jumbled up in between? Because uh, if a cell is not properly epithelialized, you know, for example, you know, all your uh, neurotransmitter machinery has to be on one end, right? On the other end, there is the basement membrane, which the cells have to be tethered to. And all of this has, you know, not only, so by asymmetrically distributing proteins, you're specializing the cell. And if you disrupt the, the epithelial organization, you're not going to be able to distribute these proteins correctly. If the, cell, if the cells are not associated with the basement membrane, then the, their response to physical stress, you know, oh, so push it is, or... It is uh, at the apical and basal edges where the things have to be organized. I was just thinking, the nuclei are all over the place anyway. They're moving up and down, and the nuclei are scattered. But the cells are also, you know, there, there are desmosomes. You know, so junk, a, there are apical junctions, but they're not the only junctions. Yeah. Directly... Below the adherence junction are the gap junctions. Then you have desmosomes. Then you have on the basal surface focal adhesion kinases and hemidesmosomes. So there are junctional complexes all around. And you will, if 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 you're talking about disrupting these, then you are talking about disrupting some sort of junctions. And the basement membrane, and actually, if you dissolve the basement membrane or disrupt it somehow, that really wreaks havoc on the tissue. So, I have a question about, uh, and it may be related, but it's on the, the basal side of the dorsal part of the neural tube. So, cells are un- undergoing interkinetic. Um, a migration or are you talking about where the tissue fuses um, at, the, at the dorsal part right? the very dorsal the very dorsal uh-huh. and uh, and you said uh, uh, the BMP and TGF beta signaling pathway is involved in uh, modifying you know um, the, the cell cycle and things like that but at that dorsal most dorsal part cells also have to um, presumably break a barrier to migrate out you mean these are crest. neural crest cells, right? Uh-huh. In order to to um, make the peripheral nervous system. Mm-hmm. So, what mechanism, or is it a very similar mechanism, the balance between BMP and TGF beta that causes the, uh, um, um, I guess, um, transition of epithelium to a migrating neural crest cells that are occurring at that time, at that point? So, you know, the role of crest. I don't really understand it yet, right? Um, so, I, you know, there's some work that Paul Kulesa has done and, and Carol Erickson, um, which suggests that, you know, our initial thinking was, you know, there's this tight cluster of cells at the uh, dorsal midline that gives rise to crest, but that idea seems not to be in play anymore, and really the dorsal third of neural tube gives rise to crest. So cells are just escaping the tube? They're escaping the tube and they undergo an epithelial to mesenchymal transition to take a hike. And the reason why I ask is that most of these uh, neural tube defects, um, their craniofacial region is completely malformed. 
Right? It is. It's more than just a uh, um, neural tube defect, but it's also causing defects in in the periphery. And these uh, peripheral defects are also uh, neural crest derived. So, so you are a neural crest specialist, right? So I'm going to turn this question back to you. Uh, so in early on, you know, there's really no way to distinguish which cell. Am I right? Which which cell will turn into a crest and which cell will be a neural epithelium? There's no way to do this, right? Am I right? Uh, no. I mean, I'm not right. No, no, no. I mean, at that very time point, uh, um, uh, a, a progenitor, uh, a stem cell, will give rise to a neural crest, and then later on in time, when uh, the neural tube has closed. Uh, that population of neural crests will now give rise to the right, so, so, so there is no... Yeah, you can't really... So the part of the problem that uh, is the how you distinguish between these two mm-hmm. populations. There's really... Uh, I don't have a good way to yeah. distinguish the two. I was told I should try PDGF receptor alpha, one alpha, and that might distinguish you know, crest precursors. But to my knowledge, there's really nothing that you can distinguish. And crest cells can, um, you know, they come out of every which direction, right? They come off. So if here are the, the leading edges of the neural folds, they come out of here, they come off the apical surface, they come off the basal surface. So they come out every which way. Uh, and it's I, I don't think this is that easy to study, actually, right? Because the, if there was just a basal delamination or an apical delamination or a leading-edge delamination, you could start to hum another mechanism where it seems to be fairly random and dependent on the cell that has de- decided to up and out. And from Carol Erickson's time lapses, these cells basically uh, rip off their basal processes. So they are bipolar progenitors, just like any other neural progenitor, and they rip off their basal processes before they eject. So somehow this ripping off the basal process, which is the same thing as saying dissociating from the basement membrane, that somehow triggers whatever delamination events that follow. Right Now having said that, the leading edge of the neural tissue is a very special tissue, and I didn't have time uh, to show you guys this data. But, uh, you know, they're not bipolar. Now, I don't know if these are crest cells or not, but they are unipolar cells. So the question becomes, right, so you have a, here is the neural fold. Let's say the edge of this table is the neural fold, right? This is apical. Here is the ventricle. This is basal. What is this? This has to be lateral, right? But it doesn't really have the cellular properties of lateral tissue. It has cellular properties of apical tissue, right? And so the question is, if the cells are bipolar in the apical-basal axis, how do you organize cells when you come to this edge, right? It has to be a different organization. It turns out this population of cells is actually unipolar and is orthogonal at 90 degrees to the bipolar progenitors. Are these crest cells? I don't know. So the old uh, scanning EM literature, there's some gorgeous papers in the late 70s um, 
which call which recognize that these cells are different from standard neural progenitors, uh, and there's a ton of cell death in that region. So either these cells die, or they are some type of crest cells that emigrate, um, or there, you know, in other fusing tissues, there's a lot of migration away from this region into the, the depth of the tissue. So they may also migrate away. But clearly, a few stages after this fusion process, this cell type does not exist. Right? So this leading edge is a very specialized uh, tissue. And I didn't tell you, but we've started a new project on ICUP closure. You know, because fusion mechanisms across organs, whether it's the cleft, I'm sorry, whether it's the palate, or heart fusion, or neural tube fusion, or eye cup fusion, fusion mechanisms use pretty much the same cell biology, you know, over and over again, right? And so um, we've started a new project on eye cup fusion, and uh, you know that's a much more easily accessible tissue because you know, and it's huge in the bird, right? The eye. So we are hoping to learn things in the eye cup that we can bring back to the neural tube. And there too, there's a ton of um, tissue, um, you know, which uh, we are tentatively calling periocular mesenchyme. We don't quite know what it is. This actually penetrates neural retina and actually migrates into the retina. So this special class of cells could be crest, or could be cells that will just go more ventrally and just sort of become part of the neural tube later on. Look forward to that. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>